Well, good morning, church. Uh, this is December 26. This is the day after Christmas. So let's all just take this big sigh of relief, this big breath, shall we? We can relax now. We can relax. Don't relax too much. Okay. Uh, I sometimes wake up on the wrong side of the bed. Thankfully, it's not much, but uh, I don't feel like praying. I don't feel like coming before God. I don't feel like thanking Him. I feel like being just critical toward people and unloving. I just want to do what I want to do. And yet I think at those times, I think at those times that, um, uh, wow, isn't this a great time just to really trust what God says instead of my feelings? I'm going to trust what God says instead of how I feel right now. And I think, a lot of times I think, whenever I feel that way, I wonder if that gives more glory to God than on those days where I'm just really up and the sun is shining and the birds are singing. And In some ways, I think that December 26th, the day after Christmas, is national get out of, bed on the, get out of the wrong side of the bed day. <laughs> because everything is just kind of down, isn't it? Emotionally, physically, mentally. I mean, even the musicians are tired today. No wonder. <laughs> Drew is tired. I know he's tired. But doesn't it, won't it give more glory to God if on this day we can just say in our hearts, I know you want to speak to me, Lord, today, because God has not forgotten this day, has he? Let that be the prayer in your heart. I want to, I'm not, I'm not going to trust the way I feel today. I want to trust your word, Lord. I want you to speak to me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you that this day is on your calendar. Not because it's Sunday, but because you have commanded it. You have ordained it. You sustain it. You are active in it. You have planned the events of this day according to your good purposes. And so we desire this morning to hear you, to thank you, to praise you for who you are and for what you have done. Our only Savior, speak to us today. Teach us from your word. Let us rejoice in your great salvation through Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we've been hearing Matthew's account of Jesus coming into this world for the past three weeks. It's been an interesting and attractive story, but so far, it hasn't been attracting a lot of people. We don't see the crowds coming to worship or even to admire the baby Jesus The story begins with a genealogy, a 40-plus name genealogy. And I get that. That's not going to attract a lot of people, even though I think it's interesting. And then we hear about his birth, which really, for the most part, seems shrouded in secrecy. Yes, King Herod and his soldiers want to pay him a visit, but it's not because of his birth 
It's because of what some foreigners have said. In fact, the only people who really seem eager to visit the baby Jesus was this band of troublemaking wise men from out of town. Well, things don't get much better after Jesus is born. His mom and dad bundle him up, and they skip town. In fact, they skip the whole country. They hightail it to Egypt. And when they come back, they settle in this nondescript kind of backwater village of Nazareth. Things settle down. It seems like the whole world is taking this big collective yawn, kind of like the day after Christmas. So imagine, imagine that you are a new believer in Christ and you're reading the Gospel of Matthew for the first time. You know, and you know that even non-Christians know, that Jesus, this man Jesus, has left his mark on the world. And so you're eager to read about this Jesus, this long-awaited Messiah, this prophet who is greater than the prophet Moses, this high priest who's greater than the high priest Aaron, this king who's greater than the great King David. But this far into the story, it seems like it's been something of a non-starter. Jesus is growing up in obscurity. But that all changes when we get to Matthew's account of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We finally see the crowds coming. But it's not Jesus who's attracting them. It's this guy named John the Baptist. So let's read now Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warn you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Before we ever hear anything from Jesus, we hear words from John, a man marked by a message. This is point number one in your outline. The first thing we learn about him is he is the Baptist. Well, maybe you've heard this saying, don't shoot me, I'm just the messenger. We, uh, we might like to use that saying if we're tagged to deliver an unwelcome message like, um, the boss wants us to work this weekend. We like that saying, 
not what the boss said. We like that saying because it's safe. It, it, it says to others, hey, I, I, I'm not responsible. That's not my message. I, I, I'm, just, I'm just the messenger. Don't shoot me. But that saying, it has a way of deflecting blame. It doesn't find much of a place in the Bible. It certainly doesn't find a place in John's vocabulary. John's message was his life, so much so that people identified him with it. John the Baptist. John was known as the Baptist because of what he did. And what he did was preach. John came preaching. So if you'd lived back at that time, and if someone came to tell you about John, the Baptist, who was preaching and baptizing people, you might think, well, if you knew your Bible well, and, and that Bible most likely would be the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, you might think, oh, well, wait a second, Naaman, yeah, Naaman the leper, uh, he baptized himself seven times in the Jordan River, but someone baptizing someone else? I've never heard of that. That would have been your reaction because baptism wasn't a thing back then. People just were not baptizing other people. And John didn't come preaching to Jerusalem or to some other heavily populated area. Not that they were heavily populated like we are today, but still, he came to the wilderness, really the desert. You can almost see someone coming up to him and saying, Hey, Mr. Baptist, don't you know that if you go to Jerusalem, you'll get a lot more disciples? And by the way, you'll get a lot more financial support as well. There's a story in the book of Judges. It's in chapters 4 and 5. It's the story of Deborah and Barak. Deborah was a prophetess. Barak, he's just a guy. We don't know anything about him. But Deborah, called, Deborah calls Barak and says, I want you to call out from two tribes in Israel, just two, I want you to call out 10,000 men who will fight against this bad guy, Sisera, and his 900 chariots of iron. Now keep in mind that Barak was not a military leader. The Israelites really had no military. In fact, they had no swords. They had no shields. Maybe they had just wooden pitchforks. So Barak, he says to Deborah, I'm not going to go unless you go with me. But they go. Here's the astonishing thing. 10,000 men leave their farms and their families and they go and they fight with Barak. God gave Deborah the message. God gave Barak the men. God gave Israel the victory. Here's the point. When God gives someone a message, he gives the people who will hear that message. John's message was simple. You need to repent. Repent, repentance, is one of those words that is easily misunderstood today. Though they sound alike, repentance and penance are not the same thing. Penance is this uh, idea that, um, 
um, that I need to punish myself in the hope that God will overlook the bad that I've done. And repentance is not saying this boring prayer over and over and over and over again. It's not serving someone I, I really don't want to serve. It's not denying myself Skittles and M&Ms for the next week. Repentance doesn't mean I have to try, really try hard to feel bad and down and miserable and sorry for something I did or didn't do, like give someone a Christmas gift. Sorry I said that. The text gives us a reason for repentance. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Not repent because you hurt someone's feelings. Not repent because you're not a good person. Not repent because, wow, you really posted something stupid on Facebook. No, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent because the reign of God is coming. It is near. You might be thinking at this point, wait a second. God is sovereign. He has always reigned over everyone in every time and in every place. That's true. But in past generations, as Paul would put it, God didn't give a flip about the nations. That's how I would put it. He let them go their own way. That's what it says in the Bible. That's what it says in the book of Acts, chapter 14. But now, now something big is about to happen. John is saying that the reign of God is near. God has come down. Now he is about to make himself known in the flesh. You need to repent. But if repentance is not all those things, then what exactly is it? Here it is. Repentance. Repentance is changing your mind. It's changing your mind about who God is. It's changing your mind about who you are, who you are before a holy God. Let me give you an example. So a lot of people dislike turnips and turnip greens. I'm not sure why, because I really like it. In fact, for Christmas, I got a jar of pickled turnips. I can't wait to open them. (laughs) But a lot of people don't like them. They really don't like them. But you don't see turnip-hating people marching to the produce section of Albertsons and saying, I hate you. I hate you. May you dwell in the deepest, darkest place of the compost bin forever. You don't see turnip haters doing that. What you see turnip haters doing is nothing. It's nothing. They don't think about turnips and turnip greens. That's a shame. They just ignore them. They never cross their mind. And that's the way a lot of people, actually most people, are with God. They might not raise their fist. They might not curse at God to his face. 
well, most of them, they just ignore the one who created them. They are indifferent to the God who lays claim on their every breath, their every thought, their every word and deed. They treat him. They treat the holy God like turnips and turnip greens. And that's why we need to repent. That's why we need to repent, uh, we need to repent if Christ isn't the bread and butter of our lives, if he isn't the favorite food of our daily existence. So we need to fundamentally change the way we think about God. But we also need to change the way we think about ourselves. Most people, most anyway, think that, I think just all of us, think that they deserve good things in life. Okay, maybe not that really nice house or that nice sports car. Maybe not even that really high-paying job. But most people, okay, I. You know what? I do deserve that ham and cheese sandwich for lunch today with avocado and pickles on it, on homemade bread that I've been thinking about all morning. I do deserve to watch the Broncos and Raiders play this afternoon. I do deserve some peace and quiet this afternoon so that I can play that Call of Duty video game. Because you know what? If I don't get those things, you can guarantee I'll be a little bit testy this afternoon. What the Bible says that we do deserve is judgment. Is judgment. That's what we all deserve is judgment. That's because our sins have separated us from God. That's what Isaiah says. He says that in uh, chapter 59, right at the top of the chapter. He says this, your iniquities, that's your evil deeds, your bad deeds, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Wow, that's sobering when you think about it. God doesn't hear the sinner. He doesn't pay attention to his prayers. Unless the Lord does something in our hearts, unless the Lord changes our hearts, and only he can change our hearts, we remain marked by sin. Sin is the defining feature of the unbeliever's life. Not personality, not wealth, not social or political or academic status, not good deeds, because sometimes sinners can do good deeds. We see that. Not even bad deeds, but sin. Sin is what defines the unbeliever's life. Sin is the unbeliever's existence 24-7. An unbeliever is not a sinner because he sins. Oh, I, 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 I did this bad deed. I must be a sinner. No, no. It's the other way around. I sin because I'm a sinner. The unbeliever sins because he's a sinner. That's his identity before God, a sinner. If you happen to find 
a black widow spider under the crib or under your dining room chair, you don't say to yourself, ah, you know, I don't really care for those kinds of spiders, but I I know that they eat insects and they eat flies, and so I'm going to let it. No, you don't think that. What you do is you pass immediate judgment on that creature of darkness. (laughs) Because you will never welcome in your presence a black widow spider. That's the way it is with a sinner before a holy God. It won't happen. It won't happen. Well, I've said some things that might not sit well with you. It's like, Randy, this is, this is really hard to swallow. You're saying a, an unbeliever sins all the time? You're telling me that God does not hear a sinner's prayer? Please come talk to me. I'll be down here after the message. I invite you to talk to me. But here's the point. We all deserve judgment because of our sins. And the fact, the fact that we enjoy any good at all, a ham and cheese sandwich, a football game, a breath of fresh air, is only God's grace. God's grace is the undeserved good that he gives us every day, all the time, all the time. That's God's grace. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was John the Baptist's message. That was the message that marked his life. If you were to ask people who were even remotely acquainted with John the Baptist, what do you think about this guy, John? They would probably say, oh, well, he, he, he baptized people. He preaches repentance. Uh, he, he, he speaks about the kingdom of, of heaven. Uh, Jesus, Jesus, yeah. In fact, as we'll find out later in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus himself was mistaken for John the Baptist. (laughs) How would you like that? How would you like it if someone that you knew was hearing about Jesus, reading about Jesus, and they thought about you? Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be something? So try this when you get home. All right, this is hard. Uh, and it's safe. You can, you can do this at home. Try this when you get home. Ask your spouse or your grown ch- uh, child or someone who knows you, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of me? Or what is it you think is most important to me? What is the message that marks my life? And then be prepared to pray. (laughs) John the Baptist preached a message of repentance. It's a message that shouldn't have been a surprise, surprise to anyone because it was prophesied some 750 years earlier. And this is the sub point under number one. The messenger predicted The messenger was predicted by Isaiah the prophet. Verse 3, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. 
Have you noticed something about Matthew already and how he uses the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament? He loves to quote it. We're not, we've not even come to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, or maybe we have, and already he's quoted the biblical prophets six times. And when he does refer to them, he expects the reader, expects the hearer to understand the context of that quotation in the Old Testament. So let's do that now. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 39 and starting in verse 5. Now Matthew quotes from Isaiah 40, and Marcia read that this morning. But I want to go back a little bit to get the context. So here it is, Isaiah chapter 39 and verse 5. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The prophet Isaiah has just given the death sentence for the kingdom of Judah. King Hezekiah, one of the last of the good kings, has just heard, whether he realizes it or not, that the Jewish people would soon lose their identity as God's people. Their identity was based on the presence of God. So think temple. In the land of God, so think Israel. And they are soon to lose those things. The temple would be destroyed, and the people would be vomited out of the land. That's what the Bible says. It uses that word vomited. They would be vomited out of the land. And then we come to this, Isaiah 40, starting in verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Against the backdrop of Israel losing its identity as God's people, Isaiah is saying that their warfare will one day end. Not Israel's warfare with foreign invaders, that will end too, but her warfare with sin, her hard and long and exhausting struggle with sin will one day end. And how will it end? Or how will they know that it is soon to end? A voice. Someone will cry out that people should make a way, a highway for the Lord. So in those times, when a high-ranking dignitary was to visit a city, the city would go all out 
They would go out and they would clear all the roads. They would make them smooth. They, they would remove every obstacle out of the way to let the dignitary know that he's welcome. But when it's the Lord who's coming, then not just the roads, but the mountains and valleys, the uneven ground, the rough places, make them all level, for the Lord himself is coming. And let me just say, as an aside, that's what we're supposed to be doing today. John the Baptist was preparing the way, preparing the way, but he was preaching, you prepare the way. You make straight his path. We do that as followers of Christ when we remove obstacles out of the way of unbelievers so that they can clearly hear the word of God. We do that for our fellow believers too. Maybe you've heard me uh, share this before, but it's from the Gospel of John in chapter 11. It's the story of uh, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Jesus says to this four-day-in-the-tomb dead person, Lazarus, come out. But before he does that, the stone has to be rolled away. Jesus could have said, stone, roll away. But he didn't. He commanded God's people to roll that stone away. He commanded God's people to move that obstacle out of the way so that a person who was dead could hear the word of God and live. That's what we should be doing. We should be removing obstacles out of the way for unbelievers so that they can clearly hear the word of God. And we do the same thing for believers. What happened after Lazarus, Lazarus was raised from the dead? Jesus again commanded his people, those grave clothes that are wrapped around his feet, remove them. It's as though he's saying, hey, you see your brother or sister in Christ? Take that obstacle away so that they can walk with me. That's your job as a Christian. That's your calling. You're an obstacle remover, now that you know. But let's not miss something. When Matthew quotes Isaiah, when he says, prepare the way of the Lord, he's saying something very profound. He's saying that John is speaking of Yahweh. Yahweh himself is coming in the flesh. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew says about John that he's the voice of one crying in the wilderness, but he also gives us a hint about who he is. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And Matthew's not saying this to add a little color to his commentary. He's saying this because someone else in script, Scripture wore similar clothing. We find that in 2 Kings chapter 1, where it says of Elijah that he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. So what Matthew is trying to tell us is that John the Baptist is the Elijah who was prophesied to come. And so it, it's here that we need to connect the dots. The Bible is one book. It's one story. And the more we read it, the more we read those, those sections of Scripture that it's like, I don't know what's going on here but we persist in reading it, 
the more we keep doing that, the more we see those dots connecting. The more they come together. And we say to ourselves, whoa, (laughs) this is one story. This is one big and beautiful story. And it's not about me. So, the very last thing we read in the Old Testament, it's in the book of Malachi, is about Elijah the prophet. If you have your Bibles open, you can turn back just two or three pages to get there. Again, keep in mind that the Bible is one book. It's not, uh, it's not a collection of two books, the Old Testament and uh, the New Testament. That um, most of you, I bet all of you, have this blank page in between the, new, the Old and the New Testament, what one scholar in, in jest called the abomination of desolation. I agree with him because it tends to make a it tends tends to make a division in the story. You know what? You can uh, you can cut that out. You don't need it. It's like what? You don't need that. It's one story. So here it is. Malachi chapter four, the last two verses of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Well, I'm not entirely sure what turning the hearts of fathers and children means in this passage, but whatever it is, we know it's a good thing. But if this doesn't happen, if this doesn't happen, if, if John the Baptist doesn't preach, The land remains under a curse. It will be destroyed. John the Baptist must preach. John the Baptist must baptize. And that brings us to the second point, an attractive message. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. They were going out to him because, can you believe this? He was telling them to repent. That's not exactly the message that a lot of Christians like to preach today. What you hear today in a lot of places is this. God really loves you. He really does love you. Oh, won't you come to him now? And you will also hear sometimes, and and God has this great plan for your life. That message, that message that God loves you, unbeliever, is evidently not the message that unbelievers need to hear. I say evidently because Peter and Paul, in their evangelistic messages to unbelievers in the book of Acts, you can read this, they never mention that. They never tell an unbeliever that God loves them. What they do tell them, what people do need to hear, is that God commands all people everywhere to repent. That's Acts chapter 17. That's what people need to hear. And that may not be an attractive message to many, but it is to God. They were going out to him, confessing their sins. So now we have two words, repent or repentance, and confess or confession that sound alike. Similar, but they're not. They're different. Repentance, as I've said before, is changing your mind about who God is 
It's changing your mind about who you are before a holy God. Confession, confess, on the other hand, means literally saying the same thing. Saying the same thing? Yes, saying the same thing. Saying the same thing that God says about what you've done, about who you are, about who he is. We need to agree with God's word about these things. We need to say the same thing that God is saying. That's confession. So that means repentance must come before confession. You can't confess your sins if you haven't changed your mind about what sin is, about who you are, about who God is. Repent is the message. Repentance is changing your mind. But repentance without fruit is just presumption. And that's what we see in the next point under number two, a message of wrath. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. John the Baptist was a man marked by a message. It was a message of repentance for those who would hear, but for those who wouldn't hear, it was a message of wrath. So we have to picture what is happening here. Matthew will tell us later that the Pharisees and the scribes, and I'm sure the Sadducees were no different, they loved. They loved uh, the place of honor at feast. They loved the best seats in the synagogue. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces. And now this wild prophet of a man dressed in camel's hair, he is castigating. He is condemning these finely dressed models of morality. You brood of vipers. That was a fitting description for these men. They were a bunch of snakes because their father is a snake. We heard that preached not long ago. It's in Genesis chapter 3. It's in verse 15. This is where the Lord curses the serpent. He says, I will put enmity, that's hatred, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Well, that devil of old, that serpent of old, the devil, that's what the book of Revelation calls him, has children. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees were some of those children. And so were we. If you are a Christian today, you were, at some point, a child of the devil. You were born a snake. We all, we all were. We all were born into that family of vipers. And the only way to leave it is to be born again. That's why we need to repent. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. These men had no need for repentance because they were presumptuous. They trusted that their eternal destiny was bound up 
and what everyone else in their tight-knit group believed. We have Abraham as our father. It's the we of unbelief. There's a solidarity in the, of the unbelief in that we. We have. Here's the issue. The eye of personal accountability before God, the eye, that's me, the eye of personal accountability before God takes the back seat to the fellowship of safe thinking, to the accepting, welcoming crowd of those who agree with me. John's response to this is a little surprising if we think about it. You, you Pharisees and Sadducees, you're putting your trust in that long-dead relative of yours because you have 40-plus degrees of separation from him? That's pathetic. These rocks are just as much related. John's response should be unsettling for some of us today. The Apostle Peter said, you can read this in Second uh, Peter chapter 1, he said this, Be all the more diligent to make your calling an election sure. Be diligent, he says. Make every effort. Try as hard as you can to be absolutely certain that you are right with God, that you know him, that you will be with him in eternity. And that means each of us, each of us need to ask, Is my confidence before God based upon what the Bible says? Or is it based upon what my political or social tribe is broadcasting? Will I, when I stand alone before a holy God on that final day, will I stand blameless before him because my mom and dad prayed with me? Will God allow me in his presence because my buddies thought I was a good guy because I had a passing grade? Will my sins be forgiven because everyone in my church thought I was a Christian? Those who believed were confessing their sins, not the sins of the crowd. And each one was baptized individually. But unlike those who were being baptized, these men had no need to confess their sins. They weren't repentant. And there's a consequence for failing to repent. The axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the axe is not laid to the base of the tree. Cut a tree off at the base and a stump remains. A sprout can come up. The tree can still live. The tree can still bear fruit. But cut a tree at its root and you kill the tree. It's dead. It's good for nothing except to be burned. And why is the axe laid to the root? Because the tree is producing no fruit. That's what repentance is all about, fruit. True repentance is not something that, that, that just stays up here, that stagnates in your head. It's something that bears fruit. Think of a tree. True repentance is that 
life-giving sap that flows through the roots, into the trunk, out to the branches, out to the farthest twigs, and it bears fruit. And that fruit is always people. It's always people. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what Paul says to the Galatians. You can find it in Galatians chapter 5. But all those virtues have people in mind. Fruit is about loving people. Fruit is about being patient with people. Fruit is about being kind to people. Fruit is about people. Repent is the message that John the Baptist preached. He preached it because people then, as they do now, need to be reconciled to the God who created them. And they are reconciled not by any good that they do. Remember that sinners can do good. They think they're doing good. Sinners can do good, some good things. But they're not reconciled to God by that, but by the coming one that John spoke about. We'll see more of that next week. But for now, note what Isaiah says. I'm kind of paraphrasing some of this. Note what he says about the coming one. He was like a root growing out of dry ground. He was the one people were indifferent about the one people rejected. He was the one who bore our griefs, our sorrows, our sins. He did that because we couldn't. He was the one who was cut off from the living. He died on a cross because we were indifferent toward him. He died so that we would know him, so that we would love him, so that we would be with him. Remember what Isaiah said about John? He would be the one who cried out to the repentant that their warfare had ended, that their iniquities, their evil deeds would be pardoned. So what about you? What about you? Has your long and hard and exhausting struggle with anger and bitterness and lust and envy, and coveting, and deceit, and pride, and stubbornness, and gossiping, gossiping, and so many other sins, has that long struggle, has that ended? If ever we think that repentance is too much to ask, we need to ask another question. Was it too much to ask the living God to come down and die? because that is what needed to happen. Repent may not be an attractive message, but it's one that people need to hear. It's one that God wants people to hear. I know some of you will have questions about this. So again, please come talk to me after the service or talk to any number of people here about what that means. But let your life, let the message of your life be marked by the love, by the peace, by the joy of knowing Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Oh, Lord, some of us, we just need to repent. We know that. We know that we've held on to and nurtured unkind thoughts toward other people, even toward our brother or sister in Christ. We know about the careless and cutting words. We know about that coldness in our hearts. Father, there are some of us who claim the name of Christ, who are faithful in being with your people when they meet, who sing your praises with their siblings in Christ, and yet there's a gnawing, an emptiness, a lost joy. You command us to repent, but we can't. We can't do anything apart from your help, so give help. Lord, give us help. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved, saved from our own weak and worthless efforts to change ourselves. Unless you do the work, we work in vain. Build your house, Lord Jesus. All glory be to Christ. All glory be to your name. Amen.